0: This is the Fun Kids Bookworms podcast where you get to find out about the best books from the people who write them. I'm Bex and this week we have got a Michael Morpurgo special. Yes, that's right. The legend that is Michael Morpurgo has taken over the Bookworms show today and we are thrilled about it. Now, Michael came to chat to me about his brand new book, When Fishes Flew, and we ended up having quite a long conversation, to be honest, because he is the loveliest man. Midway through, he even stopped to read me a poem. Yeah, that's right. A lovely poem that he had written himself. So we decided to make this uh, show a bit of a special, a bit of a Michael Morpurgo tribute a bit of a kind of lovely celebration of all things Morpurgs. So here we go. This is what happened when I spoke to Michael Morpurgo. So I'm joined right now by, I think, world-famous author, we can possibly say, Michael Morpurgo. Hi, Michael, how are you?
1: Very nice to be with you, Bex. Very nice to be here.
0: Now, I feel like you're a bit of a friend of the show because we've met before um, at the Barnes uh, Festival, and I imagine you've had a very busy summer of lots of different festivals. Would that be right? Well, it's,
1: it's getting very busy. I think to start with the summer... A lot, of, a lot of festivals are quite tentative. Some were still online. And then the festival we met at, Barnes Festival, I think in a way opened the door a bit and said, well, no, I told you what we'll do, we'll have a big, 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 big tent. And we'll have people spaced out at tables so they can't be close, even if they want to be. And it worked really, really well. And I think that's what people have the I think we're all learning to be as safe as we possibly can but be connected to what it is we love doing. And in our case, of course, it's stories and it's books. And I, I just think we just got to learn to, um, I suppose, sort of grow uh, the idea that this is going to be around. We just have to learn to deal with it, be careful about it, look after each other, finally. It's about looking after each other.
0: I've got to say that Barnes Festival, for me in particular, that was an amazing event because, as you say, it was kind of the first one back, I think. Um, But also it was incredible. Whenever you mentioned any of your books, I heard a whole crowd of the audience be like, it was like a rock star about to play their big hit. It was like, you know, it was incredible. And it must be quite exciting for you to go back to those crowds of people who are just so enthusiastic
1: it it is, and it really surprises me all the time. And I think it. I tell you what, it'll happen to you, Bex. You won't. You won't like me saying this, but you will get old one day. You really will get old one day. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and the joy of getting old is, uh, if you survive long enough, that there's a whole history behind you. We have a whole history of our lives, and that's what links us to other people. And in my case, it's a whole history of writing stories. And so, in a way, when you go to an event like that. It's not just the children who recognize the titles, it's their parents because they read these books when they were young. And um, that's that's wonderful. You get this feeling what you've you've been around for a long time and you've made a proper connection. And the wonderful thing about being a writer is that finally, finally you are making relationships. It's They're very important relationships. You hardly ever meet the people who read your books. It's relatively rare. And when you do, it's just wonderful. But when even when you don't, what you know is that your stories are reaching across, yes, you said the world, they reach across the world into um, other languages, Chinese, Russian, French, German, whatever, whatever language it is. And you're reaching people you'll never meet, telling the tales you want to tell. And it's about human connection and understanding. And I, I love that.
0: And of course you are the master storyteller I mean our listeners will know you from War Horse, Private Peaceful, uh, Butterfly Lion but you have a brand new book to tell us all about and uh, this is a very exciting one When Fishes are Flew it's a story of Eleanor's War and it's the first novel in, is it two years that you've had
1: out? Well that's what the publishers say I think they try to make it <laughs> exciting as if it's something special, in two years well you know it's, I should have actually written one a year before I suppose is what they're saying, <laughs> yes it's the first novel for some time but I've been writing other things as, as well, but this is the first novel, yeah. And I'm very excited about it because it is, I think it is, you maybe could do some research for me, Bex, or so your listeners can. I'll try. But I think it's the first novel uh, ever to be written and told by a fish. <laughs>
0: I'll have to do the research on that one, but I'm, I'm going to probably take your word for it, let's face it. You know more than I, I, think, I do. I
1: think we are close to it being the only one ever told by a fish. And I'll have to explain to you what's behind that, really. Shall I tell you what the story, how the story started? Is that the best thing to do?
0: Go for it. Yes, please. Please do.
1: Because it involves a fish, as you might guess now. I and mean, all the stories I write, all of them, um, begin with some rather fortunate happening some place I visit, someone I meet, some story I hear. In this particular case, two years ago, before the pandemic, if you can believe there was a before the (laughs) pandemic, um, Claire, my wife and I, we were in a a place called Ithaca, an island near Capphalonia and Corfu in Greece. Why were we there? Because we'd become interested in the Odyssey, great book by uh, a fairly decent writer called Homer. Homer... (laughs) Homer had lived on this island several thousand years ago. The ruins of his house are still there on this island. And we knew we were going to stay on the island, which is part of the great legend of Troy. And we happened, by pure coincidence, to be staying in a little house on a beach called Dexa Beach. And this was the beach up which Odysseus walked several thousand years before in legend, when he came back to see his wife after 10 years being away. There was this old lady and a whole family, about 15 of them, but there was a grand old lady who was clearly the grandmother of the whole thing, dressed in a long black dress, and she would wander up and down the beach each evening about 5 o'clock, picking up any bits of plastic or bits of wood that had been washed up by the sea, which we thought was wonderful. She was looking after the beach. Anyway, one day we were lying there, watching her do this again, watching the family play in the sea, jumping off the key and all this stuff. And then suddenly she looked at us and beckoned us over. Come, come, come! So we went over and she was holding something cupped in her hands like this. And it was a flying fish. She said, they, they come here to die, which was very sad. And then she looked at us and she looked at us very, very straight. And she said, and they talk, you know. She started stroking the top of the fish's head, very gently. And the fish made this sound. The fish was talking. And and I'm I'm not lying, this really happened. The fish was talking, and I didn't know fish talk. I knew whales sang in the sea, but a whale is not a fish. This was a Mm -hmm. fish
0: talking. What a, what a lovely thing to do to write um, a kind of old and young person's point of view as well. That's quite exciting.
1: Well, I feel it is, and I suppose, and that, again, is personal. It's a, it's, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm rather old. I'm 78, and I have, um, what is it, eight grandchildren and one great-grandchild, and I'm more and more connected and concerned, I suppose, about the relationship um, between us and how old um. Have to and must understand how it is to be young now. And our young must understand, if you're going to have any real connection, must understand how the world was when that ancient person has grown up. And what has that, that person done? Is it just Granny who is there at Christmas and, but you don't know much about her? And I think, by and large, that's what happens. You end up by, I suppose, casting people as being old or young. That's rather like casting people As if they are male or female, we shouldn't cast people, people, individuals, they're people. And I I know I had, I think maybe it's something that sparked me into writing this. I had an auntie, an old auntie, who sadly isn't with us anymore, who during the war um, had worked, I think it was a place called Bletchley Park, which was a place where lots and lots of um, women sat and passed messages um, and received messages into occupied Europe, coming out of occupied Europe, which saved, I mean, hundreds of thousands of lives. And these were, yeah, and what did they do? They sat there, they did their work, they saved these lives, they went back, they made their tea for their husbands, you know, they did the housework, they came back the next day, and no one knows who they were. In fact, they weren't allowed to tell anyone where they were, because it was all secret. And I only learned after she died, that this auntie had been doing that. So goodness knows what, the, she was always a good kind woman, but I didn't realise just how heroic a life that was really. And of course they were faced all the time with the possibility in this country of being bombed. And, and um, they, were, they were working up against it and they had lots of anxieties and worried about people who were away at the war and would they come back. And they lived through all that. And I think in a way we've had to live through a bit of that just recently, not the same, of course but it touches on it. It touches on sharing our, the anxiety of our lives and how we're going to cope with it. So, yeah, it all, it's all that came into the book. And for me, it was a very rich book and quite an important book for that reason, really. For me, you know.
0: You must have, I, I won't lie to you, Michael, you must have been thanking your lucky stars, the kismet, on the one day you meet this older lady and the fish, and you meet the 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 younger man in his house, you must think, well, that's brilliant, that's the next book done and dusted.
1: Well, you do. <laughs> that must have been
0: quite an amazing day. You
1: do, but it, it, what's really lovely is that it goes, it goes very deep. You you, st- you can't stop thinking about it. And that's why it becomes a book in the end. It's something that begins to obsess you almost. I mean, to give you another example, which people will know more about, I think, is that, you know, when I wrote War Horse, I didn't just sit down and think, oh, it's a good idea to write a book about a horse in the first World War. No, I met an old bloke in a... Pub, the pub in my village, the Duke of York in Italy. And this was 45 years ago. And he was a man of 80. And I knew, because I'd been told that he'd been as a, as a young lad, he'd been to the First World War. So I started a conversation with him. I said, You know, what regiment were you in? He said, I was with the Devon Yeomanry. I said, well, What was that? He said, Oh, horses. I was there with horses. <laughs> And suddenly we were having a conversation about soldiers and horses and how much they loved their horse and how much they talked to their horse because they couldn't confide what they were feeling, the fear and the longing and all the rest of it. They couldn't talk to each other about that. It was too painful. But they could talk to the horse. And so a horse would become a friend, and they were they relied on each other and loved each other. And I found that very touching, very moving. And that's the reason because of that old bloke, Will Fellis in the pub in Idersley. He told me that tale, so I wrote a story. But I think it's, it is luck, It's luck. Um, but I think after, after the luck has happened, you tell the meeting or you've seen the event or whatever, then it's what you do with it, really. And what I tend to do is I, I go through what I call dream time. There's a time when you're not writing at all, you're just thinking it through, um, creating in your mind, in your head, a vision of the place and the people, um, but not rushing into writing. I, that comes maybe six months, Later. Wow. And I was later, I was lucky with the lockdown too, you know, because um, I'd had time to think about this story and then suddenly you couldn't go out. You know, you were shut in your yeah. house. Well, what else can you do but write or shout at people? And I only had my wife to shout at, and I don't do that. And it was you have to write, you know, that's what I do in my life anyway. So for writers, the lockdown was how should I say, if you can have a good lockdown. It was as good as you can get, but then it does come a time, of course, when you look out of the window, and you know that there are people out uh, out there going through terrible difficulty and tragedy and all the rest of it. But then it was quite good to get back inside your book, inside this thing in your head, almost to escape from it. So, you no, know, no lockdown during that thing was good, but it was it certainly helped me get through it. And each of us had to find our own way, our own pathway through those times and the difficulties. And so, stories was my way and when fishes flew was the path where I followed
0: it must have been, you seem to do a lot of research as well, so it must have been nice to have the time to kind of, to research the history of uh, the kind of, the Greek gods and the, and the geography of the area, but also the the war and, and that kind of thing as well. Yeah,
1: and what lovely is, was lovely was I was already reading this book, which was full, 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 yeah, of, full of Greek gods and Greek heroes. <laughs> it was pre, pre-done, all that. And the place I was, I've mean, been to Ithaca, I knew every beach and I knew every rock, and I've been to Homer's house and I'd asked him, you know, we got sort of, Um, really involved in the whole life of the island and the the legend. But I did have to do some research about the occupation by the Germans and the Italians of um, those islands during the Second World War and the resistance fighters who died um, trying to get them to go away and go back home. And then uh, the awful things that happened once they got rid of the invaders, which they did. And then the British, our soldiers arrived and, and help them rebuild a bit. And then at last they had their freedom. That was really wonderful for them. And then along comes an earthquake in 1954 and kills many, many, yeah. many people. And then you had to research that again. And you found out that there were a lot of people who were helping other people. Some people had to leave the islands. All that all that had to happen. And then that was done and you'd think that would be enough for the island. But no, 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 they had a, a really unpleasant fascist dictatorship that came in in Greece and threatened the liberty of the people again, told them what they couldn't, they couldn't paint and write. And, and um, she was part of the resistance for that as well. And then you'd think that would be the end. But what has happened just recently, of course, is that war has come to their shores in the shape of refugees, which it has actually to all of Europe. But the Greeks are on the front line of it. They're coming up from Africa, across from Turkey, the first shores they come to in Europe, which is where they're longing to come to for safety and security is Greece. And they're coming there, and there tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and um, so it's another kind of an invasion. And uh, they held out their hand to these people, but it was very, very difficult because there became too many of them. And then what happens, and what happens? It's a, and wherever there's war, there are refugees. We know that in this country, and our country is full of people who came here, uh, during the First World War, during the Second World War. Yeah. And all through history, you know, we've, um, we've, we have we've know this um, at first hand and the Greeks have gone through that. And so they're all on this little island. All these things happened to these people on this little, little island and sort of microcosm, if you like, of the, the way the world was during that century. So I find it interesting to follow one girl and one woman's journey through this and what she did and what so many of them did do, which was to and be enormously courageous right the way through it and spend their time just helping other people, which is what we have witnessed hugely during this pandemic. We know it's in all of us to to play that part, you know? And uh, it, it's, it's heartwarming to see it, e- even when there's, it's a world of tragedy around us.
0: It's, it's such an amazing story. And, and was Nandi a character that you enjoyed writing as well from her point of view?
1: Very much, really. I, I wanted it to be a, um, a story which which had her voice in it. It's very important that she wrote this diary, that it was close to the story, and that you got an idea of her growing up and, uh, from this young girl just liking the presence that uh, um, this great art brought, and then starting to question everything, um, and learning from her the legends, the Greek legends, through the gifts that she'd been given, feeling her Greekness more and more, although she lived in Australia, and then longing somehow to to have more of that kind of background, which is one of the reasons she went to discover, I think, because I think the old the great aunt maybe quite subtly had sown the seed uh, in, in Nandi to to find out more about her Greekness, which is what she does, and indeed what she becomes.
0: Yeah, I, I love the idea of finding out a bit more about your your heritage and your kind of background. And yeah. I think if you can do that, that is an incredible thing. Um, before I let you go, because I could talk to you for hours, to be honest, but you've probably got things to go and do. Um, do we have to wait another two years for another novel or do you have more books okay. in the go? I imagine you're just a busy man who's always got things happening in your head.
1: I have all. I have so many books queuing up. It's like buses at the moment. Um, <laughs> you know, they, all, they all come at once. I have a book of poetry coming up next uh, month, the first book of poetry. I wrote that during um, lockdown. Um, and I've loved doing that. It's called Carnival of Animals because I I wrote um, some poems for a wonderful piece of music called Carnival of Animals by Satos, which was played just recently at the BBC Proms by wonderful, wonderful um, players called the Kenny Mason family. All young people, so not right. just kids. Seven in one family. Can you believe it? it wow! It's the, oh my
0: goodness! It, wow!
1: It's the Von Trapp singers only. Without the celebrity, they are just wonderful, wonderful musicians. And uh, I got to go to the studio just in the... It was actually after the first lockdown. And I'd written the poems because I was asked to do it. And they said, oh, you can come and read the poems. And Olivia Colman read some of them, and I read some of them. And then they played their wonderful music. And then we did a prom just not long ago. And I loved doing it. I I just felt it was... um, Should I read you So all that evening, my wife and I... Talked about nothing else except this talking fish. And I knew, because I'd been reading, obviously, that there was one God called Proteus who could change himself into anything he wanted to change into, any creature. So I thought in my head, this is Proteus who changed himself into a flying fish. I know it sounds stupid, but that's what I was already beginning to think. I was already beginning to work it out a bit. And we were walking along this road after our Taverna meal that night, still talking about this extraordinary event and we were walking past a house, quite a modern house. There was a light on and a sort of porch and a uh, balcony, and someone was sitting there. And we were going very close, so we had to say hello. So I said hello in my best Greek. Chris. And this guy says to me, Hello? I said, You're not Greek, are you? He said, No, I'm Australian. <laughs> so I said, what are, you, what are you doing here? He said, I'm on holiday. And, he, and then he started telling me this extraordinary story. So, in one day, two stories out a talking fish, and then this man told a story. And he said, when he was a little boy of five, he lived in his mum and dad's house on exactly the same spot. And it was in 1954. And there was an earthquake. And the earth shook, and the house came down. Many people were killed all over the island. He had nowhere else to go at all, he and what was left of his family. The only place they could go was where they had relations, which was in Melbourne, Australia. So he went and lived the rest of his life in Melbourne, Australia. But he promised himself, all the way through his young life and his older life, that if he ever could, he'd gather together enough money to go back to Ithaca, to rebuild the house on exactly the same spot. And he'd come there for three, four months, so much he could. And I thought to myself, this is just, this is just wonderful. It's like, it's, it's like a magic story. And then I did some research and I found, what did I find? That there were flying fish around Australia. There were flying fish in the coastal waters around Ithaca. So I started weaving together this tale about a girl who is being brought up in uh, a Greek-Australian girl um, living today, being brought up in, um, in Melbourne, Australia. But they have a visitor who comes once every two years, a great-aunt Elena, and she comes from Ithaca. They don't really know anything about her, they just know she's an old lady and she's always been present and she likes doing Greek dancing and she likes eating Greek food and they love her coming because they all feel, feel really Greek again. It was, it's a really... And this girl adores her, absolutely adores this old lady and then one day they get to her down saying she's too old now to fly so she can't come anymore and she promises herself that as soon as she can she'll do what a lot of Australians do, she'll get a rucksack and she'll go across to Europe and she'll find her aunt Elena Again, But when she gets to her house, she's not there. And then there's a whole story about how she meets a fish on the beach which I was talking about, Dexa Beach. And this fish tells her the tale of this old lady now who she has thought of as just a funny old auntie. And it turns out she's much more heroic in her life than any Greek hero she's ever read about. So that's really what the story is about. It's about old people and their lives that they've led. And it's about quiet heroism, which I think needs, it needs telling. I think these are the people who, for instance, and I think it's maybe why I wrote it during the pandemic. There've been all these quiet people who just, oh, I don't know, they've they've driven the lorries that collect our rubbish. They bring our post they teach our children, they nurse us in hospital, and no one gives them medals, but they are the quiet heroes, you know? And I, I just think it it's good to shine a light um, on the quiet things, so that's what this book does.
0: I do love the angle of of real life stories and heroes don't always wear capes, heroes aren't always given medals, but they could be the person sat next to you. And I think that's a lovely angle that you take uh, in the story. And I should
1: say, in the book we've just been discussing, we haven't really talked about the extraordinary illustrator, a man called George Butler, who's never illustrated... Butler, yeah. A, yeah, he's never illustrated a children's book before. It's his first one. And uh, right. he's, I think young people will really like to know that he's a young man, unlike me, he's a young man, and a quiet hero. He's one of these people who really believes in what he draws and paints. And he draws and paints what he cares about. He goes out to places like Syria, and to refugee camps and places where there's been war or there is war. He's been out to Afghanistan and and along with the army and all the rest of it and draws what he sees. And take photographs, more films, he draws. And so this book is full of the most extraordinary drawings, very, very telling and touching, uh, wonderful with people, wonderful with landscape. And he really makes the book grow so that in, in a sense... The cover sort of hits you. You hope you I hope people are gonna take it off the shelf. But open it up and there's this whole world of the place of Ithaca, of the flying fish and all, all of that, and the buildings that are knocked down and the ruins that because he's had experience of this first hand. You know, he's lived in amongst the rubble. He's seen what happens when houses are bombed and when invaders come in. And so George Butler is he, he's he's quite an artist, he's wonderful, lovely man too.
0: That's good to know. Yeah, his, his pictures are incredible and a really good accompaniment to the, to the story, I would say. Really, really well-chosen, yes. the two of you, I think.
1: That's terrific. No, it really is. I'm, I'm so thrilled to have, um, to have discovered him. Well, it wasn't me who discovered him. Someone else discovered him, but, but put us in touch anyway. So I'm very lucky with my illustrator.
0: Just Just pretend you discovered him. Pretend you're the one who's got him in the world. You know, it's fine.
1: <laughs> you think I could do that? All right. I'll tell you yeah. now, I discovered him. It, it was we... me. It was me. Wonderful.
0: <laughs> it'll be our secret no one will know it's fine Great. um well, well michael pergo thank you so much for chatting to us for fun kids um i've had a blast i'm sure our listeners will do as well so thank you so much and we'll look out for all of your many books on the bookshelves
1: <laughs> Great, Bless you thank you Bex, very much
0: Just a reminder, Michael Morpurgo is brilliant, obviously, and his new book is out now. There are also some other non-Morpurgo books at the moment. Uh, You can check out Einstein the Penguin from Iona Rangeley. Uh, Now, this is all about the Stuarts, a lovely family spending a sunny, frosty December day at London Zoo they're kind of enchanted by one small penguin and uh, they have a bit of an adventure, shall we put it like that. We also have the brand new book from A Diary of a Wimpy Kid. This is Jeff Kitty's newest book in the series. And after a disastrous field day competition at school, which I reckon is like sports day, right? Greg decides that when it comes to his athletic career, he's officially retired. But after his mum urges him to give sports one more chance, he decides to sign up for baseball. And well, let me just say, he has a bit more... um. A, a, bit, a few more ups and downs, let's put it like that. As you know, if you read The Diary of a Wimpy Kid Adventures, uh, Greg is always up to something. Brilliant stuff. Uh, they are my two book recommendations for this week. Now, Michael Morpurgo, or Sir Michael Morpurgo, as I probably should call him, is, of course, the loveliest man ever. But he also is a brilliant poet. And he decided to tell me one of his poems during our interview.
1: I'm very fond of tortoises. And one of the poems that... um. Saint-Saëns wrote music to was about a tortoise. So I'll just read you a tortoise poem. It's quite short, don't worry. It's not going to go on. It's not like the Odyssey. <coughs> <scenes>. No, No. <laughs> no,
0: please anyway, do it. There,
1: there are about 15 poems. There's lion, there's fish, there's, and there's a tortoise. And here's, here, here's what I wrote. And funnily enough, I wrote all of them from the point of view of the animal. I thought that was important, which of course is what I'd just done in When Fish is Fluid, sort of carried on with it. Here's the date, tortoise. You people are obsessed with speed. You know you are. You know the fable, well, of course you do. The hare with the speed ego took a nap and I won. But what the hare didn't know, nor La Fontaine, was that I don't like racing, never saw the point of it. I'm happy, we are happy. Being slow, slow is good. Slow is cool. Imagine a world where we all go slow. No need, no wish for cars or trains or planes. Imagine an Olympics where the slowest wins. Tortoises on every winner's podium. Gold medals round our necks. No need to build any more houses. We carry ours with us. And we're still here. After millions and squillions of years, you may worship speed. But you'll wear yourselves out. We never do. We never have. Take it easy. Go slow. And you'll go happy. Take it from a tortoise.
0: Uh, that's pretty much it for the bookworms podcast today big thank you to sir michael Morpurgo for being my very special very excellent guest he is an absolute legend and one of the nicest people ever remember if you've enjoyed this you can listen to me on your dab digital radio online and on the free fun kids mobile app on your smart speaker just say they fun kids every weekday from 4pm see you soon